0: A young friend of mine, new to pastoral ministry, was preaching through the book of Ephesians when he came to the particular text that I just read this morning. Previously, he had composed some wonderfully biblical messages from this little epistle, but when he got here to Ephesians chapter 5, he struggled to craft a coherent message that was true to the scripture. He loved his flock. He did not want to offend any of them. He knew that straight teaching from this passage was going to make some in his congregation upset. He didn't like conflict. He certainly didn't want to create any. And the first draft of his sermon from Ephesians five twenty-two and following wouldn't have created any conflict because he didn't say anything. His own discomfort with the text, what he anticipated would be its consequences, was evidenced in how he managed to. Skirt the issue and write several pages of meandering thoughts, just on the edge, but never quite coming to what needed to be said. My friend needed to learn what I have had to learn, that the preacher's job is not to please everyone in the congregation. In fact, the preacher's job isn't to please anyone in the congregation. The preacher's job is to please the Lord. And we do that when we preach his truth. The scripture warns us about in the end times, the difficult times that will come, those who have itching ears, who will gather to themselves, preachers who will tell them what they already believed before they ever even opened a Bible. We ought to be cautious of creating our own little echo chambers, making church that place where we come to be affirmed rather than to learn. preacher's job is not to please everyone or anyone in the congregation and it's also not to justify the word it's simply to proclaim it john stott wrote a book one of many the preacher's portrait and in that book he describes see ya bye baby (laughs) nice try He describes the preacher's task as being a steward and a herald. He says we're stewards of what God has said and heralds of what God has done. The herald speaks on behalf of, declares the word of the king. His job isn't to justify the king's message, it is to declare it. The preacher's job is not to justify scripture, it is to declare it. But it is the preacher's job to present it accurately and to explain it. As necessary. Few passages require more careful explanation and treatment than the one in front of us today. As one writer put it, if we can get beyond the turn off words in this passage, we will discover a beautiful and challenging model for Christian marriage. If we can get beyond the turn off words, look, our goal here in this church is never to get beyond the words of Scripture. Right, We are not going to plug our nose and, and swallow this like it's some nasty medicine that we just have to take in and there, that's done with, and let's get on to something else that we really want to hear. Our job is not to get beyond the words of scripture, it's to get after them, it's to get to them, and it's to understand them. The subject of this morning's message is the biblical wife. I toss that modifier around and have to use it for the biblical home. Um, Perhaps a little bit too easy. I'm assuming that you all know what, what I mean when I say biblical. But just to be sure, when I say a biblical wife, I mean a wife who lives in accordance with the pattern and the parameters set for her by the very word of God. You don't come to worship in a Christian church to hear the wisdom of the world. At least I hope you don't. The best the world has to offer on this subject of marital roles is very likely to be wildly, vastly different than what the scriptures teach and say is best. And in particular, when it comes to the role of a wife, the counsel of the contemporary world and the wisdom of the eternal word of God are not compatible. And their incompatibility is evident from the start of our text in verse 22 of Ephesians 5, which says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So that's it. That's a sermon. Thanks for coming. Um, Okay, that's not it. But that's it in a nutshell. A biblical wife is a wife who submits to her husband. Now, that's not all there is to being a biblical wife. Absolutely not. There's all kinds of places we can go with this. We can go to Genesis 2. And we can see there uh, in, in the book of Genesis uh, that, that God designed woman to be a helpmate to man. And that she is his complement. And she is the one without whom he is truly incomplete. We can open up Titus 2 and see that the wife is the keeper of the home. Or we could go to Proverbs 31, which is a portrait of the excellent wife who is industrious, who is hardworking, who is savvy in the business world while caring for her children and supplying all the needs of her family. Or we could look at any number of Proverbs that instruct a wife in how to be and also how not to be a godly wife. Scripture offers example after example of wives who do this wifing thing very well and some who don't. And we could go in a multitude of directions this morning, but as we have been studying the biblical home as Pastor Mike preached on the biblical husband and the biblical child in the book of Ephesians. So that's the book that we're opening this morning. That's where we're going to find our teaching. Let's pray. Father, we we submit ourselves again. We humble ourselves underneath your word, knowing that we're coming to a passage of Scripture that has created conflict and has not been well received and has been misunderstood and misapplied. Lord, we need you to understand your word every time we open it, and we especially need you now. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to discern your truth. We pray that your grace would flow through this place as we humble ourselves to know what you intend for us to learn today. We ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, this verse before us is a command. It's not a suggestion. And anytime we come across a command in Scripture, it's important to understand what it is requiring of us and what it is not. And it's also helpful, if we can discern it, to understand the why behind it. And in order to do this, we have to locate this particular verse in its larger context in the passage. Anybody been in this church for any length of time understands how we harp on context. It's what helps you understand the word, what came before it, what comes after it. The requirement of submission here in this section begins earlier, I think it's verse 21, which calls all believers to mutual submission as a way of distinguishing ourselves from the world and a way of honoring the God who made us. If you're familiar with the structure of the book of Ephesians, did you understand the first three chapters? There are six chapters. The first three chapters, we call those the indicative. They set the stage, give you the rationale. This is the why. The next three chapters, this is the imperative. This is is what you do with what you've known. This is what you do with what has been revealed in the first three chapters. And here Paul is saying, listen, Jesus Christ has saved you. The Son of God has saved you. Three chapters of how majestic and wonderful and beautiful the salvation of Jesus is and how he reconciles us to God and reconciles us to one another. And then three chapters of, and this is what you do in response to that. This is how you are supposed to live. This God who has saved you has called you out of darkness and has made you children of light. Therefore, you are to live as children of light. And one of the distinguishing characteristics of children of light is their willingness to give preference to others. Is their willingness to love others more than they love themselves. Christians are to stand out in this world as that kind of people, right? The kind of people who aren't running around demanding their rights, but who are giving preference preference to others in honor. And it is from this basic premise that Paul goes on to describe submission in three types of household relationships: wives to husbands, children to parents, and servants to masters. Wives are told to submit to their husbands, children are told to obey their parents, and masters are told to obey their and servants are told to obey their masters. And on the flip side of those commandments, Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Parents are not to exasperate their children, which takes some of the fun out of parenting. (laughs) And masters are to treat their servants with goodness and fairness. The big picture here of this last part of Ephesians is that Christianity translates in day-to-day living in mutual submission. Okay, that's the big picture. It's adherence, striving to please others more than and even at the expense of themselves and striving to honor God in their obedience just the way that Jesus did. All Christians are to be imitators of Jesus. So that's the context. And knowing this context at least prevents anyone from focusing in on this first verse Verse 22 of chapter 5, and believing that somehow wives are being singled out, that they are being picked on in some way, that they are, they are uniquely called to submission. The truth of the passage is that every Christian in his or her household relationship is commanded to submit in some way. And that is not to even pretend that this is easy, that is not to diminish the magnitude of this expectation, okay? Okay. But it is to say that submission in the home is the expectation. And if you could just think of the peace that is possible in a home where all are intent on serving one another instead of jockeying around to get their own way, you can see why God wants it that way. Think about the peace that is available in our homes if we will love each other more than we love ourselves and care for them more than we care for for ourselves, and I know for a fact that some of you are actually very good at that. Everyone in the biblical home is called to submit in some way. And specifically, since our focus this morning is on the ladies, a Christian wife is called to submit to her husband. All right. Submit, I think you will agree, is, as the one commentator put it, the turn-off word in our passage. Amen. <laughs> Amen. You don't have to say amen and give yourself away. I can see it on your face. (laughs) What does it mean to submit, and why is it such a distasteful concept for so many? What does it mean to submit, and why is it a distasteful concept for so many? That latter part is what's going to be the subject of the message moving forward through the end of the day. And then, Lord willing, I'm going to conclude this message at the early service next Sunday. So this is really a part two, uh, two-part message, the first part today, the second part at the early service next week. Not at this service, because Pastor Rockwell is preaching, and I sure didn't ask him to preach Ephesians 5. <laughs> I should have. I didn't think. Don't talk to me, talk to him. You know, I really don't think, I, I really don't think sometimes. But here's the deal. You guys at the usual 11 o'clock crowd may miss a second part of this message. There are a few things that you can do. Number one, you can get up early and come to the 8:30 service. And you will hear it. Number two, you can watch the recorded message sometime next week. Number three, you could subscribe to our podcast and listen to it at your leisure sometime after next Sunday. We have a podcast. How many knew we had a podcast? 5 three, four, five. You're a double. You don't count. You knew it last time. Besides, you're the tech person. All right. We actually do have a podcast. Don't ask me to explain it. I can't even define it, but I know this. Next week, we'll have some information for you about how you might sign up for the podcast. And that, that's for this as well. But it's also, again, I told you that we're ramping up for the fall, but we're also ramping up COVID contingencies. And we do not want to be disconnected. So one of the ways that we can stay connected is through that publishing of that podcast and making sure you have access to the teaching that's coming out of this church. All right, let's move on to submission. Why isn't it easy? Why do so many bristle at this idea I'm going to suggest three reasons why we might find it difficult to submit. First is this. We naturally resist authority. We naturally resist authority. Now, that's not news. I know it. But I do think it's probably underestimated. I do think that the The depth of this issue in in us humans, the width of it, the breadth of it, this thread that runs through us, this anti-authority thread, is probably bigger and more influential than most of us want to concede. In fact, it's so normal that it's kind of, and so natural that it's kind of common, and so we don't always question it, and we don't question it in others, but it's not really a healthy thing. I know it's not a shock to you that we have a problem with authority. And as I said in the early service, if this doesn't apply to you, just let it fly, okay? I'm not talking to you if you don't have a problem with authority. You could talk to me about how you don't have a problem with authority. <laughs> some people are really bad with this. Some people appear worse with it than others. Uh, some of us are really just have a problem with authority, choose to kind of quietly rebel. And But here's the deal. We are rebels, every one of us. It's a sinful nature in us. We are rebellious. The prophet Isaiah rightly describes us, Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have done what? Do you remember what he said? We've gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. We want to do what we want to do, and we don't want somebody else telling us what to do. And if somebody does tell us what to do, we may not do it. And our lives are probably littered with practical examples of how much we actually resist authority. Whether that authority is our government, or our bosses, or even God himself, we are prone to resist it, sometimes even resent it. I think that's why God has to tell us in his word that he has established authority and that authority is for our good, But our submission is made difficult by our natural resistance to authority. And for the biblical wife, the specific authority of the husband. Who, who, as we see in verse 23, is established by God as the head. And in truth may not be the best husband in the world. That's a tough authority to submit to. Number two. We misunderstand the purpose of authority. So I have a natural aversion to authority, but number two, we misunderstand the purpose of authority. Authority and order as given by God are for human thriving. We don't always see these boundaries that God sets up as good, do we? Or best, any more than we thought the limits our parents were putting on us when we were teenagers were good ideas. Right? No, these things are slowing us down. We don't often see the authority and the order that God has designed and implemented as being for our good. And many of us would rather just color outside the lines. We're just going to break the rules. You know, from nearly the beginning of creation, our enemy, the devil, has opposed the work of God in this earth. And when God set up the garden with all its abundance... Adam and Eve had all they needed to live well. God granted access to everything save one tree. Remember what that was? The tree of knowledge of good and evil? If Adam and Eve were to eat of that tree, God said, you'll die. And the evil one shows up to tempt Eve. And the first thing he does is cast dispersion on God's word and on God's goodness and rather than saying, how good of God to give you all this, how wonderful is it that you have everything and anything here and the only thing you have to stay away from is that one thing. You've got everything else, you just have to stay away from that one day. Instead of saying that, what does he say to Eve? He said, did God really say you could not eat of any of the trees of the garden? He completely misinterpreted, completely misspoke, completely accuses God. What an unreasonable God, the tempter is saying, to keep you from anything that you desire. What what an unreasonable God to tell you what you can and cannot do. That is his point and the rest as we know is history. She ate and he ate. Now God's purpose in setting a limit in the garden was to ensure Adam and Eve's well-being to preserve their life with him. The purpose of authority and order as given by God is for human thriving. It is for maximum joy. But for some reason we believe that authority exists to rob us of happiness. Consequently, humanity has spent much of its existence in the dogged dismantling of the order established by God. We've been doing it pretty much from the garden, trying to tear down what God builds. We do seem hell-bent, and when I say we, I mean the human race. We do seem hell-bent on obliterating the boundaries built by God. It's as if it were a mission of some. God declares that he alone is to be worshiped, but as Calvin put it, our hearts are virtual idol factories. Romans one testifies, we regularly exchange the glory of God, the incorruptible God for images made with hands. We worship the creature instead of the creator. The exaltation of the self in our day has hardly been more prominent probably at any time in history And aren't we all seeing the consequences of this unquenchable entitlement and selfishness? People doing what they think is right in their own eyes and jumping up and down and saying, I deserve, I deserve. Beloved, what would we have if we got what we deserved? Should we never forget that? God is so good to us. God creates and declares that humanity exists in two genders, male and female. We are determined to dismiss this biological reality, which seems to me to be at least one area we, we don't seem to be able to trust the science. We continue to concoct our own reality based not in biology but on psychological whims. Not what God says, right? But what I Desire. Not what God determines, but the boldest to stand up and say, I am self determining. We are not. God creates and declares marriage to be the joining of one man to one woman, but we have found that definition too narrow and have given our national blessing to same sex unions. God creates and declares the act of sex as. A gift and says that its proper place is in the context of marriage between a husband and a wife, but we decide that that is too restrictive and believe the rule is simply that of whatever consenting adults want to do. God creates and declares there is one way to overcome our sin problem, one way for a soul to be saved, one way to avoid eternal condemnation. And that is through Jesus Christ, his son, who being in the form of God, being very God, came to earth and took on the form of man, who lived a sinless life, Life died an undeserving death, went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, became the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world so that all who would turn to him by faith will not perish but have everlasting life, will be saved. God says there's one way to him. And humanity says, well, Jesus might be a way to God. And if he was, of course, he's just one of many. There are many paths to God, is what we say. And you know what? It actually really doesn't matter in the long run what you believe so much as you're authentic. So, so much as your belief is genuine. If you are sincere. Sincerity seems to be the measure, not truth. Well, I hope that doesn't sound like a rant. I, I fear it may have. I just want to raise this prospect for your consideration that contrary to worldly wisdom the authority and the order and the roles established by God are for our good and they are designed with our best in mind and if we were humble we would know that the one who created it all knows how it's supposed to work knows how it's supposed to run knows how to care for us so that we can have abundant life now and we can glorify him by the way that we live our lives, which is our purpose here. It's not about us. It's about him. You and I are going to struggle with authority and submission if we don't believe the rule of God in our lives is a good thing. Thirdly, we misunderstand the biblical concept of authority. It's not just that we that we misunderstand authority, we misunderstand the biblical concept of authority. We, I'll get to this next week, I think, Lord willing, but we sort of equate, equate these across the board, that the authority the Bible's talking about is the authority we experience in the world, and that's not the case. In the world's economy, authority equates to power. But in Jesus, authority equates to Responsibility. In the world, authority means that you are going to be served. If you have power, somebody has to serve you. But in Jesus, authority makes one a servant. Maybe you've been in a position where you've sort of tried to climb, climb a corporate ladder, so to speak, or get in a place where you can be in charge so you don't have to do the dirt jobs anymore. I'm not, I'm not faulting you for that. That's, that's what it's like in the world. When you have certain power or authority, you can tell others what to do. You don't have to do it. But in Jesus, whereas in the world we might hire someone to wash our feet, in Jesus we are all foot washers. that a big difference, see? But not everyone wields authority like Jesus, do they? And we are going to naturally resist authority when we know or believe the person exercising it is acting on his or her behalf and not ours. (laughs) Somebody exercising authority for themselves and not for us is, the Bible has a term for that, it's called lording it over and lording it over is not God's way. Using strength or force to overpower another is not God's way. Not even in places where clear authority is established, like in the church. The Apostle Peter wrote to leaders in the early church, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge. Not lording it over. Yes, you have oversight. Yes, you have office. But you have no right to lord it over. Matthew records Jesus' teaching to his disciples after the mother of James and John sought a special place of honor for her sons in Christ's kingdom. An interesting story, you may recall, Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. This is how the world does it. But Jesus said, Not among you, not among my disciples. You guys are different. You're supposed to deal with this thing differently. And lording it over somebody else is not God's way. And that's why I think, as God in, in Ephesians gives authority to the husband over the wife, he explains what it looks like. And what does it look like? It's love. And not just any run-of-the-mill kind of love. Not just some boring kind of, you know, let's all get along kind of love. A sacrificial love, right? A selfless love. The husband is to love his wife as Jesus loves the church. How does Jesus love the church? What did Jesus do for the church? He died for the church. He gave himself up for the church. He made himself of no no importance for the sake of the church. Jesus considered the status he owned, the rightful claim that he has as the son of God, God himself, and he still decided to become nothing. He still decided to humble himself and become a man, to become a servant, even unto death. That's love. That's the love that a husband is called to, right? And I have said it in more than one occasion in a counseling session. I'm no prophet, but I got a feeling I'm going to have to say it again. To the husband and the wife who have locked horns, who cannot get over an issue, who can't get past something, who have their heels dug in, I have said, brother, you need to die. Brother, you need to die to die. You need to give yourself up for her. That's what Jesus commands you to do. That's the kind of love you're supposed to have. You see, biblical authority is not power over. Biblical authority is responsibility too. But even in Christian circles, the truth has been missed. And and the text before us has been used and abused and is still used by some to justify bad behavior. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on Ephesians, writes this. He says, The truths of this text have been perverted and abused by disordered and sinful men. God's holy word in the hands of a religious fool can do immense harm. I have seen couch potatoes who order their wives and children around like the grand sultan of Morocco. Adulterous misogynists with the domestic ethics of Jabba the Hutt who cow their wives around with Bible verses about submission. Insecure men whose wives do not dare to go to the grocery store without permission, who even tell their wives how to dress. But the fact that evil, disordered men have perverted God's word is no reason to throw it out. And that's the truth. The fact that evil, disordered men have done this wrong and have perverted that word doesn't negate the truthfulness of the word. It means they got it wrong but it doesn't mean that the word is wrong. Amen? Amen. That's what it means. But we're, we are pretty inclined to throwing things out because of abuses. And, and justifying that, well, that's not the way to go. Abuses are, are not a reason to throw out the word of God But they are an understandable reason to be skeptical about this idea of submission. These abuses are enough to give a reasonable woman pause. I want to finish with two more reasons for submission hesitancy next week and then move on to what it actually means for a wife to submit to her husband. For now, let me wrap it up with just one more thought. It takes great faith to be a biblical wife. It takes great faith to be a biblical wife. It takes great faith to willingly place yourself in the hands of another. And there is an understandable fear associated with what God is calling wives to do. And that's the fear, front and center, dangled by the devil, isn't it? The fear he tempted Eve with The insinuation that if you obey God, you're going to be deprived of something. Something you ought to have. If you obey God, you will live then an unfulfilled life. This is the FOMO. For those who don't know, that's fear of missing out. like I'm in the know. is that funny? <laughs> this is what the devil does. He wants to cast dispersion on the wisdom of God and he dangles this thread in front of you ladies when it comes to, to submission. And he puts it in your brain that if you give yourself away for the sake of God and for others, you're going to be miserable. And he tells you that if you will not do that, If you you do what God says, if you don't look out for yourself, no one will. That's what he tells you. You better take care of yourself. You better get your own back. And he tells you, you deserve better. You deserve better. What What if what the devil's telling you isn't true? What if the great pleasure and sense of fulfillment that we all seek is found not in self-love and not in self-protection, but in love for God that translates into selfless love for others? What if what God says is true? Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, our Savior said. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many.